And I just want you to know, I won't be on stage most weeks, but I'm always going to be around. And, and really the passion of my life is to connect with you guys and hear what's going on in your life and uh, help however I can. So let me introduce you to my family real quick. I'm going to do the shameless family plug. This is my family. We don't always dress up like that. That was at a wedding, so we're not normally wearing tuxedos around the house. But uh, this is my wife, Katie. We've been married for about 13 years. Uh, she's my best friend and my partner in ministry. It's my little girl, Anna. Uh, she is in the second grade. My little boy, Caleb. Uh, he's in kindergarten. You can barely tell it. He's got a cast underneath his tuxedo because he thinks he's Superman and tried to jump off the swing set, and he didn't quite make it. So he had a broken arm in that picture. And then I'm holding my 11-month-old my son. His name is Jake. Uh, he actually just took his first steps like three hours ago. And so I was writing a sermon and running back and forth. And so, man, life is good and life is crazy. We love being here. Um, I told you a bit of my story this morning, and so I'm not going to tell the whole thing again, but I'll just tell you bits and pieces of it. I grew up in a small town called Pampa, Texas. Anybody know Pampa? A few people, all right. Uh, up near Amarillo, in the middle of nowhere, no trees, no nothing. So I, I grew up there, and, and I grew up in church and, and had parents who always taught me about Jesus. And as I said this morning, I began to go to church and, and early on was baptized and, and knew all the stories, but really early on kind of just got confused about who I was and about what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And so I started around seventh grade, eighth grade, all the way through middle school and high school, going to church and going to camps and going to events and doing all the things that church kids do, but in the inside just being really lost and really lonely and feeling like I was the only one in the church that felt that way. And so that was a good seven or eight years of my life. I would just go to church and I would go to church camps and I just remember being really confused by the whole church thing and really just kind of wanting to give up on it all. And so I remember going to college, and I remember my, my freshman year, um, I went to school at A&M, and I, I joined the Corps, so I was in the, the Corps at A&M, which means they just put you in a room, and they shave your head, and they basically just tell you, these are your best friends from now on, get to know them. And so they threw me in this room, and I remember just looking around at these guys and, and, and trying to figure out who I was, and I was just with this random group of guys that I didn't know anything about. And, and so we slowly started going through our freshman year together, and, and out of the 30 of them, there were about five of them who called themselves Christians, and they were really trying to follow the Lord. And so I started hanging out with them a little bit and trying to figure out what the Christian life was about, but then my roommate was a guy from Norway. Like, he was straight from Norway to America. He could barely speak English. And so he was asking me all these questions about Christianity and about the Bible Belt and about why I believed what I believed. And I remember just at the end of it all just being really confused about why I believed what I believed. And really, I began wondering if I believed what I believed simply because my parents told me to or if it really was what I found to be the truth. And so that began a, a process of me just trying to dig into what is true. How do I know what is true? How do I know if what my parents told me is right or not right? How do I know that, that what, what I've been taught about the Bible is true? In my entire freshman year, I just remember wrestling and wrestling and trying to figure out what was going on. And then finally, as I said this morning, at the end of my freshman year, the, these people started coming into my life. And there was one, in, one man in particular that came into my life and began to take me to lunch and began to just share with me his life. And, and he paid for lunch, which was an incredible thing as a, fre as a freshman in college. But he began to take me to lunch. And I'll never forget, three or four weeks in, he just looked at me and he said, Kyle, do you believe that God loves you? And that was like the most basic Sunday school answer ever. I knew the answer to that one. And I said, yes, I believe God loves me. And he just looked back at me and he said, Kyle, I don't think you really believe that because if you did, your life would look a lot different. And so I remember in that moment being kind of insulted that he would say that to me and being really kind of wondering what he said and if it was true. And he dropped me back off of my dorm that night. And I remember just laying in my bed and realizing that he was exactly right. That, that for all my life I'd believed in a God who generally loved people, but I didn't believe in a God who loved me specifically. Because I knew that God knew everything about me, and that was a problem for me. 
I, I knew that I could hide a lot of things from other people, but I knew there was a God in heaven, and if he existed, he knew every part of my life. He knew every thought. He knew everything that I'd managed to keep hidden from my parents and from other people. And, and I remember thinking about my life and thinking about if I were God and if I knew what he knew, I wouldn't love me. And so that was about 15 years ago. That was the, this process in my life where I just began to, to really examine, do I believe that? I had said that all my life, and I would sung that for a lot of my life. And, and, and what happened over the next three or four years is these people in my life just kept speaking these truths to me, that, that you really do have a God who loves you. And, and I'll never forget the man sitting across from me saying, Kyle, you have a God who loves you unconditionally. Do you understand what that means? He said, you have a God who the Bible says he loves you no greater on your best day and no less on your worst day. And so God's not in heaven looking at your performance and waiting to see how you do and then saying, okay, I love Kyle because he's doing really well today. Or, or I don't love Kyle because he's not doing that well today. You have a God who loves you steadily, perfectly, all the time. And I remember thinking about that and thinking about how crazy that was. And then I remember going to God's word and saying, is that, is that really true? Is that really what the Bible says? And it, and it was that thought and it was that truth that there's a God who loves you and it's not because you've cleaned up your life. And you have a God who loves you and it's not because you've gone to church enough or you've done enough church things. You have a God who loves you because he, he loves you. It's who he is. As we just sing, he's a good, good father who, who loves us and pursues us. And it was that that began to just change my life over the, the period of time that I was in college. And so my story, and, and my, my wife has a very similar story to that, our lives were changed because while we were in college, some older people came alongside us and they just loved us well. And, and I don't remember a whole lot of what they taught me. I don't remember facts that they taught me. I just remember them loving me well and constantly pointing me back to Jesus and pointing me back to the, the truth of Scripture of who he was and then what that made me. So you see, that's my story. And what I want to do tonight as we jump into Romans, we're actually, we're only going to get one verse in tonight, so we're not going very far. We're going to get one verse in, and I want to talk about, about your story, but I want to talk about the man who wrote the book of Romans' story. It's a man named Paul, and he's going to introduce us to himself here at the, the very first verse of Romans. And so this is as far as we're going to get, so you, you, you can stay up with me. We're going to go real slow. Romans chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced to this man named Paul, and he begins to write this incredible letter that we're going to spend the rest of the year walking through. And in Romans 1, 1, this is how he begins this letter. He's writing to a church in Rome, just wanting to encourage them in their faith. And here's how he starts off. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. See, Paul begins this letter. All ancient letters began with this introduction. It began with the writer introducing himself, and Paul just tells us who he is. He begins to tell us a little bit about his life and why he's writing this. And I want you to notice that he says first and foremost that, that he considers himself a servant of Christ Jesus. That, that my name is Paul, and I'm a servant, uh, that, that word is slave, doulos. I'm a slave of Christ Jesus. And so Paul, like every Christian, says, I have a master. I'm, I'm a man under authority. That I'm a man who serves my Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of Christ Jesus. And then he tells us that I'm called to be an apostle. So if you were here this morning, we got into that word a little bit, but that, that word simply means a, a sent out one. I'm someone who's been sent out. I'm, I'm someone that God has chosen to send out into the world. Wow, that was crazy. It just got dark. Hey, guys. Someone leaned on the light switch. No problem. I thought my sermon was over. I was going to pray and end it, but okay, I'll go, I'll go again. <laughs> so he tells us he's a sent one, that, that he was called into this, this role that he has. 
And then he says he's set apart for the gospel of, of God, that God called him to be an apostle, a sent one, that he would be set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, that, that word means that he would be separated, that, that God had separated him and chosen him for this task of not only writing the letter of Romans, but being the missionary to much of the, the world of, of, of the early church. And so this is Paul's life, and I, I want to just stop there, and I want to actually ask you to turn over to Acts chapter 9, because I want you to get a picture of who this man Paul is. I want you to see his story, because I think as you begin to read through Romans, Romans is one of the most profound writings in human history. Uh, mankind has been studying this and reading this and writing about this for, for years and years and years. It's been this profound writing that mankind has studied. And, and, and what I think can happen is you can get this impression of Paul, that, that Paul is someone who is, is holy and set apart and is in no way like us. In, in other words, he is so far above us and so much different from us that we could never relate to him. And what I, want to, what I want you to see this morning, if you've never studied Scripture, I want you to see where Paul began. See, Paul began, and, and when we first meet him in Acts chapter 7, his name is Saul. And, and, and Saul is a man who so hated Christianity that it is his job to track down Christians and have them, have them murdered. Uh, so, so Paul didn't start off as this man who loved the Lord and who, who was following him wholeheartedly. He was a man who literally was tracking down Christians and finding them and, and putting them to death. So later, I want you to listen to how Paul described himself. He says, I want to thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an, in, an incident opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul just lays out, here's, here's who I was. That he wasn't a good man who did some good things. He was a, a violent man who was hunting down Christians and having them killed for their, for their faith. And so, so look at Acts 9 with me. If you're in the Bibles in the back of the, the, the seats there, it's page 917. And I want to just read this chapter because it gives us the story of, of Paul, who at that point was known as, as Saul. And I hope that as we read his story, your story, and some things about your life will begin to kind of take focus tonight as you start a new, a new semester and a new chapter for many of you here at SFA. So, so Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we're going to read through this. We meet Saul, and it says, Saul, still breathing threats and murder, against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, and he asked him for letters to the, synagogue at, uh, the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, so like I said, before Jesus, Saul was this very religious man. He was a, a Jewish man who tells us in his other writings that he was being trained to be a, a Jewish priest. And as he was being trained to be a Jewish priest, this man named Jesus came along and he began to, to, to teach and to say things that, that people were leaving Judaism and following Christ. And so the Jewish people, if you've read through the Gospels, they were wrestling with this. Who was this man named Jesus? And, and Saul was so devoted to Judaism and so de devoted to his religion that out of zeal he was committed to tracking down anyone who disagreed. And so he's hunting down Christians and, and followers of Jesus and, 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 and stirring up this controversy of, of tracking down those who followed Christ and trying to wipe them out. But this devout Jewish man, Saul, he, as, as he went out, something begins to happen to him. Now, I want you to look back at verse 3. So he's, he's, going, he's on this mission to find Christians and to, to, to really stamp out Christianity as much as he can. And verse 3 tells us about this encounter that he had with the Lord. Verse 3. It says, now he, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light fell, fell from heaven, uh, the, the light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. So, so just to give you some context, this is years after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, so, so Saul is just riding along, and he's on this mission to find Christians, and all of a sudden he hears this voice, and before he even knows who, he, who it is, he says, who are you, Lord? I, I recognize your power. I recognize that you are something above. Who, who are you? And the voice responds, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Verse 7 says, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And so Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said to him, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So, so at this point, Saul would have been very well known to the Christians. At this point, the Christians would have known that is the man who is trying to track us down. That is the man who's trying to put Christians to death. And the Lord goes to this man, Ananias, and he says, hey, I want you to go find this man, Saul, and I want you to, to, to lay hands on him and pray for him. And I love Ananias' response. Look at verse 13. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. Uh, that, that is Ananias' really fancy way of saying, no thanks. No, no thanks, God, I'm good. I think I'll let someone else do that. I've heard about this guy named Saul, and look at the Lord's response to that. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me, so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he arose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And, and so what we have here is, is probably the most famous conversion story in history. This conversion story of a man who was heading one direction with his life, and then all of a sudden he, he meets the Lord and everything completely changes. This man goes from someone who hated Jesus and who hated his followers so much that he was seeking to put them to death to a man who ended up spreading the gospel, the, the good news of Christ throughout the world. And, and so I, I love this story. I love the, the way that we see Paul. And I, I love to just show you before you enter into the book of Romans, which is amazing, that the man that wrote the book of Romans was a man who has a past. And, and, and for many of you who think, I, I want to follow Jesus, but I've got this past, and I don't know if I'm disqualified from that. I want to follow Jesus, but, but I don't really understand what that's supposed to look like. That as we look at Saul's story and as we begin to, to see what happened to him, I don't want us just to talk about Paul's story tonight. I want to talk about your story tonight. 
And, and so like I said, Paul's story is one of the most famous stories of, of all of Scripture, the most famous conversions that we have. And, and my, sto- my, my question for you guys is, do you have a story anywhere like that? Do you, do you have a story like that? If you were to ask me, I would say, man, I don't have a story anywhere like that. I've never fought, been pushed off a horse by God. I've never heard a voice from heaven and have scales on my eyes. That's never really happened to me. See, see what I want you to see tonight is, is the conversion of, of Paul, the things that happened here, even though this is one of the most dramatic examples in all of Scripture and all of history, the same story plays out over and over and over again as God makes people Christians. Right, so, so this is a dramatic example of a conversion story, but, but every conversion story is, is very similar. And as we start Romans, I, I just want to ask each of you, do you understand your story? See, because there's no such thing as a Christian without a conversion story. That there's no such thing as a Christian who doesn't have a story of what it looked like to be before Christ and then have an encounter with Christ and then to see afterward, here's what Christ has done to change my life. And see, if you're like me, when I entered into college, I didn't have a conversion story. I had a bunch of intellectual facts about this man named Jesus that I knew about, but I didn't know anything of personally. So so that puts every person in this room in, in, I think, one of three categories. That there are some of you who, you know your conversion story. You know exactly what happened. You know who you were before Christ. And you know exactly how Christ came into your life and changed you. And you know what has changed since you met him. Right? And that's an amazing thing. And so I hope for you tonight is just a time to reflect on that and to celebrate what God has done. But there's this second category that, that you have a conversion story and you consider yourself a Christian, but you're not really sure what that story is. You've never really thought through how you got to where you are and, and, and you can't really articulate it that clearly. And so tonight, I, I hope that this just helps you understand what God has done in your life and that you would begin to, to really understand and flesh out this, this new understanding of who you are in Christ See, then I think there are some in this room that were like me when I entered into college. You don't have a conversion story. You've got a lot of church stories, and, and maybe you've got all kinds of different stories, but you don't have this story of how Christ came into your life and changed absolutely everything for you. See, every Christian has a conversion story, and I, I want to just help you tonight to know yours and to know that, that, that as unique as, as Paul's story is, that every story that we see, every conversion story has the same three elements. So, so here's how every story goes. My story, Paul's story, your story, every Christian that, that, that follows Jesus, we have the same story, and it's these three same things. Before Jesus, I was broken. Right, so, so Paul, as he was uh, that day on the Damascus Road, all of a sudden he sees Jesus, and in that moment he realizes the brokenness of his life up until that point. And this is the story of every single Christian, that, that, that we are broken people walking through this earth trying to fix the brokenness trying to fill the hurt, trying to fill the emptiness. See, the, the Bible tells us how we got to this point. You remember the story that, that Adam and Eve were created and were complete and whole. They, they experienced fellowship with God and with each other perfectly. Right, so Terrell told me if I didn't do Genesis, he was going to kick me out. So I'm going to do Genesis for just a second. <laughs> that they were, they were experiencing God. They were experiencing each other. And, and then the man and the woman decided to disobey God. See, they no longer wanted someone to tell them what to do. They, they didn't want a king. They wanted to be king over their own lives. And so the story of Scripture tells us that they chose self over God, and this is the essence of sin. Sinfulness is, is just selfishness. It manifests itself in a thousand different ways in our lives, but it's, it's essentially just me wanting control and me wanting to be king of my life. That, that, God, you don't get to tell me what to do. I get to tell you what I want you to do in my life. Right? So, so this is this, this sin that, that we're all infected with. 
And it's why we feel empty and broken and depressed. Our souls know that something is missing and something is, is wrong. See, so this is our story. We're born with hearts that, that choose self over God. And because of that, we're born broken and incomplete and, and empty. And we're born separate from God who gives life. We're born isolated from others the way that God has intended us to be. And so this is why we feel empty and incomplete. We, we, we know that we're broken. And so I don't know what your story looks like as you've entered into this place tonight, but I know that that brokenness has a million different outward symptoms. Your internal brokenness shows itself in a million different ways, and so for some of us, brokenness looks like addiction. It looks like trying to fill yourself and deaden your empty souls with a substance to try to give yourself hope for the next day. For some of us, this brokenness looks like seeking approval and, and love from another person. And so for some of you, you have a story of going from person to person to person, and you're thinking that that next person, if you just find the right person, that that next person is the, the answer to your emptiness. For some of us, our brokenness looks like we, we just want to do something, we want to be successful. We, we want to achieve something. We want people to look at us and, and think that we're somehow, somehow worthwhile. For some of us, our, our brokenness looks like trying to be religious, we try to go through these religious things to give ourselves meaning. See, religion is man trying to reach God through our works. The gospel is God reaching us through the work of Christ. And so many of us are empty, and we've even chosen religion to try to, to fill that emptiness. And, and so this is the story of mankind, this emptiness and, and sinfulness that, that plays out in a million different ways in our lives. See, it, it is, this was Saul's story as well. He, he tried to fill brokenness with, with religion. And he tells us later on that it didn't work. Listen to his words in, in Philippians. He describes his religious life. And he tells us he did everything that he possibly could religiously and he was still empty. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So, so basically what Paul is saying there is, hey, the religion thing, I had that down. If, if anyone has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, a tri of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So, so what Paul is laying out there is, listen, I got really good at the religious thing. I got really good at doing the things I was supposed to do and going to the places I was supposed to go and saying what I, I was supposed to say. But Paul is saying that, that, that religion will not fill the emptiness. See, what he goes on to say here is that whatever, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but which comes through faith in, in Christ. And, and so in the midst of our brokenness, Paul is just saying, hey, religion will not fill the emptiness. Substance will, will, will not fill the emptiness. A person or a relationship cannot fill your emptiness. Success and achievement cannot fill, your, fill the emptiness in your life. No created thing can fill the emptiness in your soul. See, nothing besides Jesus can, can fill that. And yet for many of us, we go through life and we go from one thing to the next trying to fill that emptiness and trying to find something that, that gives us worth and, and gives us value. And so Paul tells us about something that happened to him. Later on, he's telling his story, and he said that in the middle of this moment, when, when Jesus encountered him, he describes later on, and he says in the middle of this story that, that, that there was a voice from heaven that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
It says that, it says that God went on to say, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. So it's a weird thing for him to say. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Anyone know what a goad is? It's a weird word. A, a goad was a sharp stick that shepherds would use to poke their, their sheep. Uh, so it's something that they used. They, they would keep the sheep in line by using a, a goad. And so if the, the, the sheep would kick back, they would kick against the spike, and they would, they would keep moving forward. Right, so so the, the goad was the shepherd's tool to keep the, the sheep moving straight. It was the, an instrument that inflicted pain on the animal for the animal's good. And so, so think about what God is telling Saul there. Why do you kick against the goads? In other words, I'm causing pain in your life. Why do you keep going back to these things that, that cause you pain? See, for a lot of us, we've been down these paths that have caused us pain, and, and God put some goads in Saul's path to get his attention. And God was actually letting Saul hurt, not because he hated him. He was letting Saul hurt because he loved him. And this, this, an amazing, this, this amazing truth about how God the Father loves us, that, that for a lot of you, you felt empty and you felt miserable and you've wondered where God is in all that. And, and, and at the bottom of that is a God who loves you and it's actually how he's speaking to you. So, so I look back on my life from early on until college when I began to understand these things and I was empty and I was miserable and I was wondering where God was. And, and I would lay down at night and I would just feel guilty and I would feel empty and I began to realize later on that those feelings were actually God's way of bringing me back to himself. Right? So, so, so pain is not a negative thing. Pain is something that God has given us to show us that something is wrong. And so we understand this on the physical realm, that, that if you hurt some, something on your body, if you were to walk out of here tonight and, and break your leg, the pain is supposed to happen, right? You're supposed to feel that. If you were to walk out and break your leg and feel nothing, you have a far deeper problem than a broken leg, right? That the pain is just meant to tell you, hey, there's something wrong with your leg, go get it fixed. And so we have souls that begin to feel this. And you have a soul that fills the brokenness. You have a soul that, that feels that something is off. Something is, is wrong deep inside you. And, and what that feeling is, it's a soul that's telling you, you need God. That, that something is wrong deep within you and you, you need God. You need him. You need to run back to him. Right? So, so physically, pain is a good thing. It's a signal that something in your body is wrong. And spiritually, the same is true. Pain is a signal that something is wrong, that, that something is broken. Right? And so this is where our stories begin, that, that we are broken people. And, and the beginning of our relationship with God is just you admitting this. That, that when Jesus came along, he, he was looking at his disciples and he told them, listen, that those who are well have no need for a doctor, but those who are sick, I, I came for them. Those who are well, those who think that they are well, they have no need for a doctor, but there are those who are sick, and I came for them. I came not to call the righteous, but the sick, the sinners, to repentance. And so we can begin here and, and realize that, that, that this is all of us, that, that we are broken, that we are people, that the brokenness has manifested itself in many, in many different ways, but this is the story of all of us before Christ, which is great news because you no longer have to hide and you no longer have to act like you have it all together. You no longer have to, ask, uh, to act like you don't have questions about God and for God and anger towards God about some things. So you see, you can come to this place and begin to just deal with this, that, 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 that we are broken, that we are we're no longer having to hide and pretend we're broken. But see, there's this, this second element of, of Paul's story and, and my story and your story. It's the, this, this before Jesus I was broken, but then there's this encounter with, with Jesus. And, and Jesus begins to pursue us and run after us in the same way that he ran after Paul. That there's, a, there's a God who loves you and, and pursues you. See, the church has always explained salvation in this way. We are saved by grace through faith. 
That we are a people who are saved by grace through faith. See, see, grace is what God has been doing throughout history. He's been showing his kindness and his goodness and his love to mankind. And by faith is our part that we believe that, that we're accepted before God. We are, we are with him and, and, and once again acceptable to him because we've simply believed in what Christ has done for us. And so both parts of that are so, so incredibly important. An encounter with Jesus and then this decision to follow him. And I, I want to just look at both of those for just a second. There's, these conversion stories involve an encounter with Jesus. And, and like I said, Paul's was incredibly dramatic. He literally knocked him down and blinded him to bring him home. See, God is a father who will go to dramatic extremes to, to rescue his children who are far from him. And so even though you, your encounter with God may not be as extreme and as dramatic as this, you have a God who's pursuing you in the same way. You, you have a God who's crazy about you and who's running after you and trying to track you down. And so, so, so I would just ask you, why are you here tonight? How did you end up in this place and how did you end up with the people that you're with? How did you end up coming to this place and then beginning to just hear the gospel of Jesus? You have a God who is tracking you down and, and you have these thoughts and these feelings that lead you back to him. And, and just like God sought out Saul and sought out Paul, he, he's seeking out you through, through friends and through church and through all these different ways that God speaks to you. And he's calling you to respond in, in, in faith. See, Jesus has done everything that's needed to, to bring you into a relationship with God. He's offered you life, and he'll keep offering you life because he is gracious. But at the same time, he's calling you to respond in faith and to, to follow him in, in faith. See, you, you must accept this gift of forgiveness and eternal life. It's a decision, and that's what conversion means. It means that you turn and you begin to follow him. That you put whatever's behind you in the past behind you and begin to just follow him as your Lord and Savior. And so I, I love how this, this pastor named J.D. Greer explains what it means to be a Christian. And, and again, I remember in college just wrestling with that, how did I know that I was? I, I love the way that he unpacks it. He says, salvation is not a prayer that you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. And so if you were like me, if you're the, the kid who went to church all their life, I prayed that prayer over and over and over again, hoping that somehow it would sink in. And J.D. Greer says, salvation is not a prayer that you pray in a one-time ceremony and then move on from. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith that you begin in a moment and maintain for the rest of your life. Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith towards the finished work of Christ in which you transfer the weight of your hopes of heaven off of your own righteousness and onto the finished work of Jesus Christ. I love this part. The, the way that you know that you made the decision is by the fact that you are resting in Christ now. The posture begins at a moment, but it persists for a lifetime. And, and so I would just ask you, have you come to this place where you understand that, that God is asking you not to show up at a church. He's asking you not to clean up your life and get everything together and have all your questions answered. He's asking you to come to this place of understanding and recognizing who Christ is and what he's done for you. And that salvation is not just a prayer that you pray and it's not just trying to clean up your act. Salvation is this posture of what J.D. Greer describes as repentance and, and faith. That, that word repent means to, to change your mind. It means that as you encounter Jesus and you encounter his goodness and his holiness, you begin to see the way that I've lived is, is, is not the way to life. And that you turn away from that, you, you repent from that, you change your mind about who God is and about who you are, and you begin to head this, this second direction of, of faith, of, of living with him at the center of our life, with him once again as king. See, God pursues you with his grace and, and you respond with, with faith. You repent, you, you change your mind, and this is how the Christian life begins, and this is how the Christian life is maintained. We repent and we believe, we repent, we believe over and over and over again. 
Right? And so the story of brokenness all of a sudden is healed at the cross of Christ. Everything that I'm guilty of is now covered by the blood of Christ. Everything I'm angry about that other people have done to me is covered at the, the cross of Christ. And the story of brokenness now all of a sudden becomes healed and redeemed and, and renewed. And there's this third part of the story that, that Christ actually makes us new. That we are new people. And it's this amazing idea for many of you. That, that, that Christ makes us new. That Paul would go on to say in, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Right, so, so I want you to think about that tonight as you enter into college, as you enter into what for many of you is this new chapter of your life. That, that Paul is describing for us as he entered into this experience with Jesus, that Jesus made him a completely new person the moment that he repented and the moment that he believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. It wasn't when he did enough good stuff. It wasn't when he, he, he proved himself. That in that moment, he was a new creation. He goes on to say, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. See, this is the amazing part of the gospel, that Jesus takes the past and he begins to, to just make us into something new. As, as we repent and believe, he makes us into new creations. So, so what does he mean by that? How are we new people? What, what exactly becomes new in your life? See, see when, you begin, when you turn to Jesus and begin to follow him, you once again have this renewed relationship with the Father. Where, where you were once a slave, you are now sons and daughters. And that's an amazing truth that for me, I, I wake up every morning and I have to start there. See, see I, I walk through life and it's so easy for me to walk through life and to believe I'm a slave and I'm, I'm someone who's disappointed God and, and he may love me, but he doesn't really want to love me. He puts up with me, he tolerates me, but he doesn't really, really love me. And the Bible says, no, listen, because the blood of Christ covers you and forgives you, you've been adopted into his family. That, that you are a son of God, that you can approach God the way that your kids approach you. And so I remember hearing that, and then for me, when I had my own children, it just began to click for me. That, that I've got three kids, and, and, and honestly, there is absolutely nothing they could do that would ever make me stop loving them. Right, so, so as they grow up, man, I, I hope that they grow up, and I hope that good things happen to them. But hypothetically, if my son turned out to be an axe murderer, that, that cute little boy you just saw, my, my son turns out to be an axe murderer, don't tell my wife, but if that happens, man, I would love him absolutely the same. I would get him counseling. I would, I would try to help him. But, but there's absolutely nothing that would change the way that I love him. And, and so God is telling us, listen, this is how I feel about you. I delight in you. I, I love you. I, I see everything in your life, and yet I still love you the same. We're new creation in that we now approach God as a father. We, we run to him. When we fall, we don't hide from him. We run to him. When we struggle, we don't feel like we have to hide it from him. We know that he's there picking us up like a good father does when his, his kids fall down. And so I would just ask you, do you have that? Do you have this ever-increasing love for God the Father? When you pray, do you pray and know I can pray with confidence knowing that I have a Father who knows me and loves me and invites me to himself. He, he never gets annoyed with me. He never gets tired of me. See, we see a really sad thing around here that, that there are a lot of people who come here from really broken and dysfunctional homes. And they come here in this, this, this scarred position of, of dads that somehow disappointed or dads that somehow abandoned them. And so they carry that into their, their walk with the Lord. And, and when they begin to think about God, and when they begin to even think about that word father, they hate that word. They, they hate that word. And as you come to Christ, as you begin to realize that, that Christ has done something in your life, that you have a father who, no matter how great your earthly father may have been, he's so much more than that. 
that, that you're not an orphan, you're not abandoned, you're not walking through life alone. All these things that so many of us carry through life, Scripture's telling us that's not true. It's not true. You have a Father who knows everything about you. He knows everything in your past. He knows every single thing in your present. He knows everything in your future. He knows everything about you, and he's crazy about you. And, he, and he's constantly calling you home and, and calling you to himself. See, Jesus gives us a new relationship with the Father. We're, we're no longer slaves to sin. We are sons and daughters. We've been adopted by the blood of Christ, and we have something in us that now can cry out, Abba, Father. We can run to him and know that he, he delights in that. And, and not only a new relationship with the Father, a, a new relationship with the church. And so I hit on this one a lot this morning, but you have brothers and sisters who are, who are with you in this journey. You have brothers and sisters who have the same insecurities and the same fears, and, and they struggle the same way that you do. The problem is that most of us have just learned to make it look like we're not struggling. And so the beauty of the church and the beauty of the groups that Joe just described, we want you to be in a place where you no longer play the game, where you don't just show up and, and make it look like life is good, that you would actually sit down with people and, and, and let them into your life and that you would dig into their life together, that you would sit around in a circle and pray for each other and lift each other up. You now have brothers and sisters in, in Christ. See, I think that's probably the most touching part of the story for me in the, the story we just read about, about Paul. Paul was a notorious man who was killing Christians, and God goes to Ananias, and he tells him, I want you to go find Paul, and I want you to pray for him. And, and Ananias wrestles with it, and then God says, listen, I just want you to go and tell him that. And so Ananias goes back to Paul, and, and, and did you notice the first words that Paul said, or that, that Ananias said to Paul? Ananias looks at Paul, and, and, and more than likely, Paul had been responsible for, for killing and, and, and capturing people that Ananias knew well. And Ananias looks at this man who had murdered his friends and who was tracking down the people that he loved, and he looks at him and just says, Brother Saul, Brother Saul. See, the, the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ is that dramatic, that, that in a moment, in Ananias' eyes, because of what Christ had done and because uh, Paul had placed his faith in Christ, no longer is this man an enemy and no longer is this man going to have his sin held against him. He goes to him and he says, hey, Brother Saul, that the Lord sent me to you. Right? You are a part of a new family. You're, you're a part of a, a, a church that loves you and that cares about you. Brothers and sisters who want to come around you and help you as you begin to pursue Christ and walk with him. See, Jesus gives us this new family, and we now walk through life with brothers and sisters. And, and then like I talked about this morning, we, we now have a mission in the world. We now have a purpose for walking through life. Jesus gives us this new relationship with the world, and he, he says that we are witnesses. We are ambassadors. We are people who go and tell our story to others. Uh, and, and so I don't know what your story is, but, but, but I want to encourage you to, to learn that and to tell that. That your story is significant. Your story of before Christ and after Christ is, is meaningful. And as you sit down with them and begin to tell them, here's what Christ has done in my life. He's, he's made me alive. You begin to tell them the goodness of Christ who has, who has forgiven you and brought you into his family. See, every Christian has a mission. That, that means that every Christian is a missionary. And being a missionary has nothing to do with your geography. It has everything to do with living on mission wherever you are, living for Christ. And so many of you have been following Christ for a while, and he sent you to this random place called Nacogdoches and this school called SFA. And you are a student here, but beyond that, you are a missionary here. That God has called you to, to go into your dorms and to go into your classes and, and to go on mission there, to live as a missionary of Christ. That is your reason for being here. So that doesn't mean quit going to class. 
That means you're to go to class and you're to, to work hard to represent Christ in your class, right? It means you're to walk into your dorm and walk the halls and, and love people and, and get to know them and get to know their story. And then as you get to know them, to share your story with, with them. See, Paul calls us an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador is someone who represents a king in another land. And that's what you are as followers of Christ. You're someone who represents Christ in another land. You walk this campus and you walk this city as his ambassadors to the world, speaking of his love and his goodness and his grace. And so this morning, this, this evening and this semester, as we jump into the book of Romans, I just want to start there. Because it's so easy in the Bible Belt to just assume that because you can speak the language of Christianity, you're a Christian. And it's so easy to assume in the Bible Belt because you grew up in Texas and you, you're familiar with the story that somehow that makes you a Christian and none of those things make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian is that you, you come to Christ and you repent, meaning you come to him and allow him to change your mind. That, that he is God and that he is king and that he is holy and that you're going to lay down everything and follow him and believe that what he has done is enough to bring you into his family. So, so there's some of you here tonight, like I said, you, you have a story and you know your story well. And I hope tonight that just reflecting on Paul's story and your story just brings you to this place of worship. But I think that there's some of you here tonight who you're not really sure if you have a story. You're, you're not really sure if that, that conversion ever really happened like it happened for Paul, this before and then Christ and then after. And so if that's you tonight, as, as you begin this, this new chapter of your life, that this new chapter of your story, I want, you, I want to just invite you and call you to just understand what God has done for you. And that tonight, he's calling many of you home, and, and you've been wrestling with this for a while, and you've been running for a while, and you've been trying to fill the brokenness for a while, and he's brought you to this place tonight to, to hear this message and to be reminded of the gospel. And he's just calling you home as, as sons and daughters. And so for some of you, you've never had that story, and, and tonight, I, was, I just want to invite you to, to give your life to Christ. To, to, to stop trying to work harder and stop trying to earn something that God is offering you freely, that he loves you and he's calling you home tonight. So I want to just pray for us. I want to pray for us as we start a semester. If you'll bow your head and close your eyes with me. I want to just pray for us. I want to pray for you that, that there's some of you that you've never made that decision that tonight you may consider making that decision. I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to worship a little bit more. There are going to be uh, some, some students in the back and some, some of our interns and residents in the back. And whether you know your story or whether you're still trying to figure it out, that's why we're here. We want to walk with you, and in the same way that those people love me and help me understand who Christ was, we want to do that for you tonight.